Many years ago, a lighthouse was nothing more than a fire on top of a mountain. It would be a light that would guide ships to a certain port. It would identify that the port was close and they would try to make their way in. In 280 BC, there was uh, a lighthouse that was built. It's a very famous lighthouse. In fact, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was at the port of Alexandria, Egypt, just after the time of Alexander the Great. In fact, the first Ptolemy king built it in honor of Alexander. But this light was a light as well that guided ports to that, or guided ships to that particular port. But at the turn of the 18th century, transatlantic shipping had increased to such a point that the construction of lighthouses was in a boom. Many were built, but these were not built so much to guide a ship into the harbor and to show and identify where the harbor was, but it was to warn the ships of rocks and reefs and shallow waters and currents that would protect the ship. We live in a culture today where we need a light that not only guides us to God, but a light that warns us of the dark dangerous evil world that we live in it's interesting that that great magnificent tower that lighthouse in 280 BC no longer stands several years later an earthquake came and destroyed it and John is writing to a group of believers to help them understand that there is an unshakable light that will give them an unshakable faith A light that will not only guide them through the truth, but will help expose the darkness. A group had left the church that John is writing to. They were a group of those who claimed to be a light, but they were a deceitful light. They were a light that was full of lies. And they said, if you follow us and follow our religion then you'll know God and you'll be able to experience real life. The same thing is happening today. There are those who are saying, follow me, believe me. They're presenting a light of truth that is nothing more than a light of deceit. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the father of lies. And so John is writing to this group of believers and saying, don't follow religion as they're claiming follow Christ they're saying they know the way that light is going to lead to destruction how many lives today have followed a deceitful life where their lives have crashed on the shores of rocks and reefs of evil so today we're going to go through the book of first John it's a really dynamic book it's a very relevant book Uh, It it, it really speaks to a lot of things that we're experiencing today, and uh, it really points us to the solid foundation that we need centered in Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you will, open your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John. It's in the New Testament, of course, the latter part of the New Testament, just before Revelation. Today the message is going to focus on what is the difference between a religion and a relationship with God. These 
false teachers were saying, follow our religion. And John is emphasizing, no, you need to follow Christ and know how to have a relationship with him. See, the problem today is that the religious culture is sending mixed signals. It's confusing. It's irrelevant. And ultimately, that will lead to apathy. And that's what we're seeing in the church today. We're seeing young people who are coming out of church. And 85% of those who graduate from high school don't go back to church. Some come back many years later. Often after they get married and have their first child, they begin to realize, well, maybe God is important. But it's been a religious experience for them. There are those who identify religion as I come to church and I go home and that's, that's my Christian faith. The question is, is that what the Bible defines as Christian faith? And so the world really is desperate to know what's truth and what does it really mean to have a relationship with God. You might say, well, what difference is God going to make in my life really? I've tried religion. Well, therein lies the problem. You've tried religion rather than a dynamic, living relationship with Jesus Christ. So today, I want to take a few moments as we begin to give you a little background about the book of 1 John, and then we'll kind of get into the meat of it. And uh, really a lot to say, John has a lot to say to us. First of all, we find that John, who is the disciple of Jesus Christ, is identified as the author. The early church believed that. In fact, when you read the book of John, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then 1 John, there are about 51 parallel passages. We'll look at one of those today that really help us see how consistent the authorship is between the two. Papias, who knew John, one of the early church fathers, was one of the first to identify John as the author of 1 John. This letter was written in Ephesus, and because of that, was more than likely passed around to the seven churches that are identified in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Ephesus is in Turkey, Asia Minor, known then. And uh, these seven churches in Revelation is uh, where uh, uh, the Christians were experiencing uh, this uh, deceitful teaching, these heretics that were in the church, and creating this new religion that they were to follow. Uh, there are several doctrines. I'll not go into all those that we're going to identify uh, and, and speak to. But one of the main ones is that of salvation. What does it mean to really have a relationship with God? If it's about a relationship, then how does that happen? John will say, well, first of all, you have to believe and receive uh, Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he is the Son of God and that he is the Savior who died on the cross. That He, he talks about being born again. In John 3, 16, it's another theme that he writes there. Jesus, is he quoting Jesus? to Nicodemus about the fact that he must be born again. And so a person needs to be born physically, obviously, but there's a second birth, a spiritual birth that has to happen. Then he talks about uh, the father-child relationship. Salvation means that we're a child of God, and there are great benefits that come to us because of that. A person receives the gift of eternal life, and that's just something that happens after you die, but you can begin to experience eternal life now. And he also says several places in 1 John, we'll see, that one of the proofs that you have a relationship and not religion, 
is the way that you love others. If you love Christ, it's going to mean you will love others. You'll show grace and mercy and forgiveness and help in time of need. And that's one of the identifying characteristics, a mark of a Christian. Another thing that he strongly will emphasize, we'll get into a little bit, is eschatology. That's the study of last things. He'll talk about the Antichrist. He'll talk about many Antichrists. We'll talk about the final judgment and the complete salvation that we're able to experience at the second coming of Christ. So today we want to begin this series called Unshakable about a relationship with Christ. Religion is shakable. Jesus Christ is unshakable. So let's read the text this morning. We're only going to look at the first four verses. John, first John, excuse me. By the way, hold John. We're going to go to John chapter 1 in just a moment. But 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here he helps us see in a general way that the focus of these first few verses is is centered around Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, that Jesus is eternal. Notice verse 1, what was from the beginning? Well, circle the word what. What is what? It is Jesus Christ and his message, that it was from the beginning. Notice he does not say in the beginning as God writes in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 2, notice he says that Jesus is eternal. And then at verse 2, he was with the Father. He's emphasizing the fact that he was not a created being, that he, in fact, is the creator. <clears throat> now, go to John chapter 1, and let's see the parallel passage there. John 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Verse 14, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Here in John 1, he emphasizes the same thing, that Jesus Christ is the agent of creation, that he is the creator of the universe. But there's something unique about this creator, that he came to us. Hebrews 13, 8, the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, religion is temporary, but Jesus Christ is eternal. Notice, secondly, Jesus is real. Let me back up for just a moment. Someone this past week asked me, Pastor, how do we get all these religions and denominations? And, And, you know, what does all that mean? Well, of course, we didn't have time to get into all the history of denominations, but it's a good question. 
because the point in that conversation was your life needs to be centered around Jesus Christ and not other denominations. And if you ever hear somebody say that our church is the only church, it's the one true church, or our denomination is the one true church. Now we, we know there are cults out there that say that, that if you're not in that particular group that you're out. You know, I've talked to many of them. But you know that there are some denominations of, quote, the Christian faith that would say that if you're not in this particular domination, you're not in. It'd be like me saying Southern Baptists are the only way to heaven. Would that be ludicrous? Our, our church is the one true church? You'd, you'd fire me for saying that. You ought to fire me for saying that. Because it's heresy. And so the point is, is that religion is temporary. Denominations are temporary. They're man-made. But Jesus Christ is eternal. Notice, secondly, Jesus is real. The question is, was Jesus real? And that's, he's answering this question in the book of 1 John. Now, we, we went through this extensively in a previous series this past year called uh, 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 The Pursuit. Uh, uh, the person of, uh, uh, of interest, the person of interest. And we looked at Jesus Christ and whether or not he was real. But I just want to speak to this briefly from uh, another historical angle, viewpoint. Cornelius Tacitus was known as the greatest historian of Rome. He lived at the time of AD 55 to about AD 120, and he wrote two volumes of work between the death of Caesar Augustus which would have been AD 14, and the death of Caesar Domitian, which would have been about 96 AD. So it was during the period of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the burning of Rome and the chaos and how Nero had uh, created chaos in Rome. And in writing about that, he says this, Consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero was at fault, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, that is Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that is the crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, what was that? that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. Now what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ was a real man. He was an historical figure. That he lived in Judea. That he died on the cross. He was crucified. And that there was a rumor that he had been raised from the dead. We had it in check. We had stuffed that out, that rumor out, but it's reared its head in Judea and also in the Roman Empire. And so now we've seen that Christianity is making its way through the Roman Empire because of the reality of Jesus Christ. Our faith is not about some superstitious rumor. It's about the reality that Christ died on the cross and that he was raised from the dead. And here's an historian, the greatest historian known of Rome, who verifies that. So if anybody ever tells you, well, I don't believe Jesus was real, that he was just a man, that he wasn't God in the flesh and all the rest, well, here is a secular historian who affirms the reality of Christ. Now, notice what John says about the reality of Christ. He uses these words, heard. 
seen, eyes, observed, touched, hands. And these words are repeated. John heard his voice, saw him with his own eyes. He touched him. He gives evidence to the reality of Christ. Now what is he teaching? He's teaching the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was real. He was a human. And that he wasn't some phantom ghost. Remember, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus appeared for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. He appeared to his disciples. Remember, they were holed up. They were afraid. They were worried. And he says this in Luke 24. He, he appears in the room. Touch me and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see, I have. So John here affirms not only the eternality of Christ, that he is God and he has been forever, but that he's a real man, he's a human, that the Word became flesh. God became flesh. Now let's go back to John chapter 1, verse 14. He says that this Word, Jesus, took up residence. Uh, now what does that mean? Well, the Word can be also translated he tabernacled among us. Now John no doubt is referring back to Exodus with the tabernacle. Now what was the tabernacle and what did it represent? God told Moses when they were in the wilderness to build a tabernacle. It's also called the tent of meeting. Anytime you see the word tent of meeting it means the tabernacle. Now later it becomes the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle the way it's laid out uh, is the same design that's in the temple which was ultimately destroyed in 70 AD. So the tabernacle was the place where God resided with the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness for 40 years. It was the place where the high priest would offer the sacrifices and the people would worship God. Moses would often go into the tent of meeting and there meet with God. Can you imagine coming out of a tent after meeting with God? So the point here is, is that it was a, a temporary place of worship. It, it was a, a place where God resided. Wherever the people of God went, that God was with them. And the tabernacle was there with them. Now here we find that John says that Jesus was the tabernacle. While he was here on earth. That he represented the presence of God. And wherever the disciples were, Jesus tabernacled with them. That he was always with them. Well, bad news comes. Jesus is going to leave them. And what's going to happen now that he's no longer there? Jesus says in John 14, 16, that another paraclete is to come, meaning he was the first paraclete. Here you see the, tri, tri, the trinity, the triune God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's acting as a paraclete. The word paraclete is a compound word. It means to come alongside to help. That's how it was used in that day and time. Jesus comes alongside to help man. Now he's going to leave. He says, but another, that's the, that's the word you circle. There's another, I'm the first one, but there's another one. Who is it? The Holy Spirit. Who's going to come and reside with you. And wherever you go, I'm always going to be with you. It's amazing to me how the whole Bible comes together it's all about Jesus Christ it's centered in Christ 
And that here he's explaining the reality of Christ. That he was God in the flesh. He tabernacled with men. He moved wherever they went with men and, and, and those who followed him. And when he leaves, that he is going to do the same thing through his spirit. So God has made himself known through Jesus Christ. His presence dwells with us through the Holy Spirit. That means that he's tabernacling with you. That he is real. And those who know him would affirm that. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Amen. So never think that you're alone. Never think that he's not real. If you feel like he's not real, there's another problem. It's not the fact of his reality. It's your understanding and application of the reality of Christ in your life. So much more I could say, but I've got to move on. So the point here is that Christ was fully God and fully man. God gave himself through Jesus for our sins. His physical death satisfied God's payment for sin and became our Savior. And Jesus is also real in that he can only satisfy the deep longing of your heart to be loved and fulfilled. Religion can't satisfy. It's man-made. Jesus can satisfy because he made man. And he knows you in your deepest need. Religion is counterfeit. It's deceitful. It's a false light. But Jesus is real. Notice third, Jesus is life. In verse 1, he is described as the word of life. Verse 2, the eternal life. Verse 2, that life that was revealed. Now, to get a little technical, it's important. Here we find that John uses the definite article. An indefinite article would translate this passage. He is a word of life, an eternal life, a life rather than that life. So he's the word of life, the life, the eternal life. So what's John doing? He's focusing on the fullness of life that is in Jesus Christ. He's explaining what the word life really means. The life that has been revealed, it has been witnessed, and John says we proclaim that life. Now what does he mean by the word of life? Well, our words communicate what we have heard, what we have seen, what we've experienced in life. Now he calls Jesus the word of life. Jesus expressed words to us because of, his, of what he experienced in heaven. He heard God. He saw God. He experienced God. And when he came, he gave us the word of life. He, he communicated to us in words the reality of God and who he is. And we've seen that in his life. He's the living word. Not just words but the final authority concerning God. Religion's not the final authority. God is the final authority, and Jesus is the interpreter of who God is. He's the great commentary on understanding who is God. The life of Jesus communicates who God is to us. Listen, religion is death, but Jesus is life. You follow religion, it leads to death. You follow the false light as you're navigating your ship, 
you're going to crash on the shores of deceit and death. Notice also Jesus is relational. Verse 3. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Now notice he says we also declare in verse 3. Well that's the main verb in the whole passage. It's a running sentence. And so what he's saying is we've experienced Christ. We know him. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. All the rest. And we're declaring the reality of Christ to you and who he is. We know him. John is stating the purpose of the letter in this verse. He's saying don't have fellowship with the false teachers. Have fellowship with us who've been with Jesus. We've been with the real thing. These are counterfeits. These are liars. They're deceiving you. But we've been with him. They're going to lead you away from Christ. We're going to lead you to grow in Christ. Who you're reading, who you're listening, who you're watching, are they leading you away from Christ? Are they leading you to grow in Christ? Be discerning. Now, this word fellowship is used often in the New Testament. It's a unique word. It's, a, it's really a beautiful word in the language. It's called koine, koinonia, koinonia. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're sharing something in common that produces oneness. Now, that can only happen, this kind of fellowship can only happen in our faith because of the bond that we have in Christ. It's like we have our own individual experience with Christ. Gabe referred to this earlier. Tomorrow morning, or maybe sometime during the day, you'll have time alone with God. You're going to worship Him. You have a connection with Him, but you also have a connection with other people, other believers. Why? Because there's a thread that runs through all of us, and it's the blood of Christ. And that's just not here in this church. It's Christians who are all over the planet that you instantly have something in common with them. And those of us who've traveled the world and have been with other believers know how that bond is instantaneously. How there's a oneness so different in so many ways, but there's a oneness in our understanding of who God is because of Jesus Christ. And it's the central focus of our life. I can go into other churches. I got a fantastic uh, uh, correspondence from one of our uh, pan, pla uh, church planners in the network there in Belarus. And he told me and gave me testimonies and pictures and videos of what God is doing. I'll share those with you at another time. But it's just so amazing that the same thing that I'm preaching and teaching and trying to help you understand is the very same thing that he's doing in a, in a, in a culture that does not know God. But it's the same answer for Americans and the same answer for Belarusians that they come to know God and that life is really experienced in Jesus Christ and it's based on that relationship now notice these three aspects of this fellowship first he talks about fellowship with Jesus he said we have fellowship with his son Jesus Christ and that's where the journey begins and John uh, he writes in first John particularly he always has the combination of Jesus Christ Paul would often just say Christ, but John says Jesus Christ. And what is he doing? He's helping you understand that Jesus is a real man that by that name, but by the word Christ, he is the heavenly Messiah. 
He's the anointed one who has come to be the Savior of the world. Notice there's fellowship with God. Our fellowship is with the Father, he says. Why? Because of Christ. If we have fellowship with Christ, we automatically have fellowship with God. Notice there's fellowship with believers. He says we have fellowship along with us or have it along with us. Again, as I said, the reason why we have that fellowship together is because of Christ. And fellowship with believers, what does that really mean? We share our gifts. We share our goals. That means what we're trying to do for the kingdom of God. We share our resources, which you so faithfully do. God bless you for doing that. We share our resources to help others come to know Christ and then to grow in their faith. We need each other. But the glue that holds us together is Christ. John is saying if you want abundant life, if you want real life, they're not offering you real life. I'm the only one, Christ is the only one that can offer that life. Religion is institutional, but Jesus is relational. Notice finally, Jesus is joy. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We've experienced the joy of Christ. We want you to experience the joy because that joy that they're offering you is going to lead to deep sorrow. Jesus spoke of this same joy. In John 15, he said, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. If you want real joy, it can only be found in Christ. Now, what does joy mean? Joy means absolute confidence of hope in God. The world around you may be caving in. You're under the greatest pressure that you've ever experienced in your life. But you can have joy. No, you're not happy about what's happening. But you can have absolute confidence of hope in God. He's on the throne. He's in control of all things. That he will help you. He will sustain you. He will provide for you. And in that you can rest in him and you can trust him because of who he is. James writes, consider it a great joy, my brothers, not just joy, but a great joy whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You want to grow in your faith? Well, the only way that happens is to be tested. And when that test comes, he says, count it joy. Know that your confidence is in God and what he's doing in your life. He's refining you. He's growing you. He's maturing you. He's preparing you for something greater. Paul writes, fulfill my joy by, by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the unshakable lighthouse, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that laid before him endured a cross. Now, what is that? 
He had joy in heaven, experienced the glory of God. Read John 17, the high priestly prayer. He came to do the will of God, but he knew that his day was coming and he was going to be with him again to experience that same joy that he had with the Father before he came to earth. And it's because of that joy of what he anticipated, he endured the cross. Listen, friends, we need to have the same attitude. We need to be able to get our eyes fixed on Christ because he is our joy and he will make your joy complete. And I know that there's going to be great joy in heaven when I enter into that place after all of this. Therefore, I can endure the cross that is before me and you can too. Knowing that my hope is not here. Our church has recently had two deaths, Amy Gibbs and Lacey White. Lacey's funeral was yesterday, 35 years old. And there are families that are grieving and others I may not know about. And it may not be about the loss of a loved one. It may be about something else that you're going through. But listen, God is able to give you joy knowing that one day I will be in heaven. Not only will I join them, them, but I will be with the Lord. And I'll be done with all of this. So until then, I can endure whatever cross is before me, knowing that that joy awaits me. You see, religion is sorrowful, but Jesus is joy. Religion is temporary. Jesus is eternal. Religion is counterfeit. Jesus is real. Religion is death. Jesus is life. Religion is institutional. Jesus is relational. Religion is sorrowful. Jesus is joy. So here's the question. Is Christianity a religion to you or is it a relationship? Let's get honest. Is Christianity coming to church and going home? You could be a good moral person, doesn't mean you're saved. Is, is Christianity, is faith a religious experience? Or is it a relationship? Well, Pastor, I don't know. How do I know? It's a great question. You know, because sometimes even I have this conversation with God. God, are, are you real? I mean, am I really doing this the right way? Am I missing something? Well, here's how you know. Let's go back to last Sunday. I'm sure you all remember my sermon about how we can experience something new in 23. And we said three things. It begins by praising God, giving Him glory and praise for who He is, for His position, for His power, for His passion for you. Praise Him. Secondly, seek God. Spend time with Him in His Word, in prayer. Have a conversation and listen to Him. Let Him speak back to you. And third, fear Him. Respect His presence. Because when you respect His presence and fear Him in that way, it changes the what you say, how you think, what you do. It's transformational. And so ask yourself, 
Because if you're doing those three things, you'll, you will say with confidence, oh yeah, it's, it's a relationship. It's not a religion. I mean, I, I know him. I just don't know about him. But, but he, he, he speaks to my heart. He's changed my life. I can look back and see how I've grown and matured in my faith. How I'm different. How God is using me in a way I never thought was possible. I'm so afraid that the church has become so anemic and so irrelevant to our culture because Christianity has been nothing more than a religion than a real authentic relationship with Christ. Don't miss this point. It's a matter of life and death. God loves you and he wants you to know him so you don't follow a false light. You follow an unshakable light that will give you an unshakable faith in our world today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, I thank you that you're able to give us confidence of knowing you. That we don't have to wonder or hope so or think. That it is, it is possible to say with confidence, I know God. That I have a relationship with him. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room today or anyone watching or listening, I pray that they'll be honest with themselves and truly have a relationship with you. Help these, Father, some who come to give their heart to you, some who join our church, some who need prayer. Lord, I pray that as you have spoken to their heart, they'll take that step of faith and obedience. They'll not just feel remorseful, but they'll truly repent and change directions. Help them, Lord, to do the right thing right now. In Jesus' name, amen.